You can definitely make sure that whatever you're putting down on the ground from a landscaping perspective is gonna contribute positively to the environment. It's not just landscaping that's an important consideration when designing and building places for people to live. You've just heard from Sarah Simpson, an architect and co-founder of Color Space Architecture and Urban Design in Central Texas. Her work as an architect in designing housing is based on sustainability and consideration of how the housing units will impact different aspects of the environment. Welcome to Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. I'm Salwa Khan. When starting a project, Simpson first considers the location in terms of its walkability. Will residents be able to walk to local businesses? How should the buildings be situated so they can take advantage of solar power? How should wastewater be treated so that there is minimal impact on the surrounding areas? These are just some of the questions Sarah Simpson has to wrestle with. I began my conversation with her by asking how housing and urbanization impacts the natural environment. I think whenever we talk about the basic battle between human occupation on Earth and the Earth, we're talking about, in essence, housing and urbanization. One helpful way that I like to think about any number of issues, but it's through the lens of the three E's, particularly when we're talking about sustainability. So the three E's of sustainability, it's a common framework that a lot of people utilize, but you talk about the environment or ecology, equity, or kind of the social aspect, and then economy, the financial aspect of sustainability. And so through those three lenses, you could say that housing and urbanization have the ability to create really positive change or really negative change on the environment as one of those three E's. If those two other pieces are elevated above the environment, the environmental aspect certainly suffers, right? It's always a balancing act when something like any built environment goes down on the ground. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't think about things in that way. So typically we have the economic aspect that prevails to the detriment of the environment and the equity or the social aspect. So you have the eco regions in which a place, whatever location you're talking about, the natural eco region that may have been present there. So you're disrupting the eco region potentially. You're disrupting the watershed. That's the natural flow of water across that piece of land, how it ties into streams, rivers, tributaries that help to support whatever ecology or ecoregion may be there. Then the impervious cover is a big piece of that. Whatever goes down on that ground, what is created there afterwards? Is it a bunch of pollution? Or are you planting more trees? It, it can go so many different directions, but you're, anything that you do is impacting and going to disturb that environment and natural land in one way or the other. You're, you can only strive to improve upon that condition rather than make it worse. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. I'm here today with Sarah Simpson. She's an architect and co-founder of Color Space Architecture and Urban Design. And I understand that you have a framework in which you consider the sustainability of a building. Can you talk about that? 
when asking about is something sustainable, I first always ask, where is it located? So you have to think about the proximity to services and the type of use you're talking about, whether it's a job or it is a residence. Are you placing them in close proximity to existing services so that they could ideally walk to fulfill daily needs? And so that's really that question of how close are you to a grocery store, a pharmacy, all of those things. So ideally, walk walkability is the ultimate goal. Then you can also talk about, well, is it bikeable? Can anybody jump on a bike safely and feel comfortable? And then or is it next to a bus route or some kind of public transportation? So yes, covering all of those bases, that's really the first point. If it's somewhere that's 10 miles outside of town and someone has to drive for every need to get there to leave at the end of the day, that's a problem. Are we talking about a single family house that utilizes the largest amount of land for the fewest people? Or are we talking about a different housing typology, something that might fall into what is termed the missing middle or multifamily where someone's overall footprint is relatively small compared to the number of units that are, are being housed in an area. Does it matter that this building is LEED certified? What is the LEED certification? It is I think, created around the turn of the 21st century. So in the early 2000s is when it really started to formalize itself. And it is essentially a rating system for buildings. It largely started with commercial and then it has kind of grown out to apply to existing buildings, to housing, to neighborhoods. But it is a checklist at its most basic of different sustainable aspects that people are encouraged to hit. And you have to reach a certain number of those points in order to achieve different levels of certification. So there would be things like how the building uses power and water and yes. things like that? Yes, it has kind of five or six major categories. But yes, it's certainly talking about energy usage. How much energy use? What type of energy are you using? And, you know, there's a shift to move away from any natural gas or fossil fuel usage. How much water is being used by the building? Are there innovative solutions for that, like gray water reuse? So there's a long, lengthy list, and it allows for some flexibility depending on the project and what a project team deems is feasible and appropriate for each specific project. The other aspect, again, just bringing up the three E's of sustainability would be the equity social aspect of is a project striving to serve a diversity of people. That would be another aspect that I would be remiss to not mention, but that at its heart of sustainability, it should be about serving everybody, not exclusion. So that would be the other aspect. Is there a social awareness embedded in the project? And does that relate to economy as well in terms of what does it cost? Or? It definitely plays into it. You're talking about a diversity of people. You're usually talking about a diversity of price points in housing or different ways in which people can utilize the few available federally supported programs. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm here today with Sarah Simpson who is an architect and co-founder of Color Space Architecture and Urban Design. 
You talked earlier about a location being extremely important in terms of how you want it to be located near public transportation or be able to walk to stores and things like that, which is totally unlike most housing, seems like, built in the U.S., where we're having to travel um, long distances just to go get food. And you also talked about the land. So when you talk about land, is that related in any way to the idea of permaculture, where you're talking about designing a garden, but you're considering where you get sunlight, where the water runs, the contours of the land? Is any of that important here? Absolutely. I think sensitivity to the context of the land is really important anytime you're building anything putting down impervious cover, you need to pay attention to the way in which water is flowing around the site. But then, yes, the solar orientation of a project can be really important. Where is there existing vegetation? Being sensitive to any wildlife considerations that may come into play with that. If you're next to a green corridor, what is that interface there next to a stream? So I think it is absolutely the example of permaculture can certainly be utilized. The question of how can you actually contribute to a local tree canopy in a meaningful way? What are those native plants? How can I actually contribute to the local bird population? How can I contribute to pollinators? How can I improve the water quality here? In a lot of places where you see development, the first thing they seem to do is cut down all the trees. So I'm assuming that's something you consider as well, right? A lot of cities now have tree ordinances where trees over a certain caliber can't be cut down, or if they are, they have to be mitigated with a substantial amount of new tree planting. So there's definitely disincentive there to remove heritage trees. It's a much more creative approach rather than the clear-cut approach. And then we hear about building small houses, and I think Part of what you're describing is rather than a big single family house, you have smaller units. Mm -hmm. But then there are also these small houses with a smaller carbon footprint. Is that a good way to make housing more sustainable? The tiny house movement, that can be something that's on wheels, that can be small prefabricated units. There are many, many different forms of those out there. There's a great one in Austin called Community First Village, which is transitional housing for previously unhoused. You know, it's a great place to go and tour and understand the story that they went through to make that project a reality. But the tiny house movement sometimes comes with, let's go buy a large piece of land and lay out homes across the thing. And ultimately, I don't think you can achieve really the same positive design outcomes that come when you start moving away from these detached individual units and also just achieve densities that would like support bus service, for instance. There is certainly for affordable housing, transportation, public transportation is a must, but a lot of these kind of tiny house solutions don't necessarily hit those targets either. So I can be a little skeptical, but again, there are lots of different ways to design something, so it, it always becomes a design problem, like I said. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm here today with Sarah Simpson. She's an architect and co-founder of Color Space Architecture and Urban Design. 
And we're talking about the tiny house movement. And you talked about accessory dwelling units. So what are those? So accessory dwelling units, also known as carriage houses, alley flats, granny flats, they have a lot of different names. They are not a new building typology, and they are essentially small housing units that usually live at the rear of a lot. And so there's been a large push along with the missing middle housing movement to legalize ADUs or accessory dwelling units because those were outlawed when zoning came into play, development standards came into play and only allowed one housing unit per lot, which is standard for a lot of municipalities. It's really just saying you can meet certain setback requirements that are standard. You could have another housing unit. It can be detached. It can be attached to the main unit. There's lots of different configurations there. The person that occupies that house is the developer, quote unquote, right? They decide, small scale decision here. Hey, I want to have a unit in the back of my house so that my mother-in-law can live there, so that my caretaker can live there. Could rent it out to anybody who needs a smaller unit. So there's a lot of benefits and positive outcomes that can come from allowing accessory dwelling units. Houston is a great example. I think they've always allowed accessory dwelling units. I've never outlawed them. I went to school in Houston and a lot of people lived in garage apartments, those sorts of things. And it creates a just a much more affordable and but humble housing unit that many people can use, especially when they're not staying somewhere too long, like a college student, for instance. You're listening to and enjoying Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. Our story today is about sustainable housing. Housing construction has a significant effect on natural ecosystems, on the land, the air, available water resources, and on the wildlife that inhabit the area. My guest, Sarah Simpson, designs and builds new homes for what is called the missing middle, but they're designed with as little as possible effect on the environment. In a world where more and more natural habitat is being bulldozed out of existence, we need people like Simpson. Our mission at Mothering Earth is to bring you stories of people like her who are taking action in order to create a more sustainable world. But we need your help to spread the word, so please ask people you know to listen and subscribe to the Mothering Earth podcast. Now, what is the missing middle? The term refers to a diversity of housing options such as duplexes, fourplexes, and other multifamily designs. These house-scale buildings fit easily into neighborhoods and are generally more affordable. Let's return to our interview to talk to Sarah about the missing middle. You've referenced zoning and what you call the missing middle. Can you give us a little more information on that? Sure. Around the 1920s, zoning was, I guess, invented and it's really it was a reaction to some of the unhealthy living conditions that we were seeing in the late 19th century. So zoning was a solution to say, hey, you can't have a coal plant right next to you know a neighborhood, or you can't have them mixing. You can't certainly have them on the same street. So it was really about very noxious uses and ensuring that those didn't threaten the health of a population. But with that came 
a lot of ills. <laughs> One being that as those development codes and zoning standards started to become more widely used, they became more and more reductive and and too simple for the complexities of actual life and needs. What you ended up having by the 1970s, 80s in a lot of towns was essentially a zoning and development code that said you can only build a single family house or you could only build a large multifamily apartments. And everything that was in between, a lot of, of housing typologies from accessory dwelling units to townhouses, live work units, and then a lot of what are termed duplex, triplex, quadplex, sixplex, and so on, those were essentially made illegal. And so there was a reason why a lot of those pre-World War II neighborhoods have a mix of different housing types that are really useful and beneficial to people, but anything built after that usually doesn't. So you can really see the difference in the streetscape and the building forms. And so Missing Middle Movement is about making those legal again, encouraging cities to update their land development codes and allow people to build them. <laughs> it Make them legal and then you may start to support a more diverse ecosystem of housing again. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. I'm here with Sarah Simpson, an architect and co-founder of Color Space Architecture and Urban Design. And I'm curious about going back to the tiny house. I'm thinking that most people, if they have a single family house, have about 1,500 to 2,000 square feet of space. Um, what is the average space in a tiny house and how do people acclimate to having that much reduced space to live in. A lot of those that I'm familiar with that I've seen, they can range anywhere from 250, 200 square feet up to 500 square feet. One of the things you recommend is the multi-family type dwelling. And so I'm assuming that would be an apartment, a condo, or a townhouse type situation. And I know that in some suburban communities, when builders try to develop that kind of a building, they generally come up against opposition from local residents. What's that about? So it's a very loaded history, kind of the the American sentiment that uh, is very against anything other than single family housing. It's rooted certainly in class issues, race issues, with the kind of rise of zoning. One of the ills that came along with that was a lot of redlining that happened at the same time. And in a lot of single family developments, you can still find racist covenants, not allowing people of different colors of skin to live in neighborhoods. But ultimately, I would say that a lot of that opposition does come from a fear of other otherness. So that has birthed the term, the NIMBY movement, the not in my backyard, but it is a real issue that all across America, people and communities are facing. People are just starting to come to terms with the fact that those kind of sentiments have actually slowed a lot of housing development and helped contribute to the affordable housing crisis that we're in today. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, here with Sarah Simpson. She's an architect and co-founder of Color Space Architecture and Urban Design. 
When you are designing a house, uh, are there things you're thinking about in terms of how water will be provided and used? How are you going to heat and cool these spaces? Sure. Yeah, I think the projects that we mostly focus on because that are trying to occupy that space of missing metal housing. We're not thinking about just one unit. We're thinking about multiples. And a given for any project is how can we get renewable energy production on a project? That's a standard first as well. It's rare that you have a project in which solar is inappropriate. And then water, absolutely. I mean, you know, you can start with the baseline is make sure that any fixtures that you have are low flow. But then are there ways to capture rainwater and use that for gray water reuse, for irrigation. There are various innovative water solutions that you can start to incorporate into a project as well. How are we treating water to make sure that it comes out maybe cleaner than it would have left the site even before anything was built there? A lot of our projects, we start with understanding that there's going to be some impervious cover there because cities require parking, which requires impervious cover of some sort. Right. So pervious pavers are something that we really are trying to use quite a bit more of in our projects. That's saying, if we're going to have impervious cover here, why don't we go ahead and fil- utilize that space to filter rainwater at the same time, rather than the way it's been approached in the past is kind of gray infrastructure approach of just having kind of a detention basin off to the side that has one function. So really approaching things from a multifunctional perspective is where you start to come up with some of those creative solutions. So purchase papers are a great example of that. You've got parking, but you've also got water filtration. It also creates a much more attractive space for people to occupy. And do you find people are excited about that kind of a house or living space? Is it something that is attractive to most people? No, I wouldn't say a lot of people are thinking about that. For instance, on a project that we just built, we incorporated a number of different add-on packages for solar. And a lot of people were not interested in that necessarily. However, the carports we made with solar, they were solar carports. So if you wanted a covered car space, you basically had to buy solar. So no, it's not on everybody's radar. It is not a priority, but that's okay. I think if you are in the field of creating the built environment, it is your responsibility to not make it an option, but try to embed it so that people, the average person who isn't, their head isn't in this world, doesn't have to necessarily think about it. To me, that's a successful project is when people who don't care about solar are using solar. (laughs) You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan here with Sarah Simpson, architect and co-founder of Color Space Architecture and Urban Design. A lot of people are currently living in a house or apartment and maybe they don't have any renewable energy or they don't have um, water collection or or anything that I guess we might consider uh, more sustainable. Is there anything people can do to retrofit their housing situation to make it more sustainable? For folks that are living in multifamily apartment situations, it can be difficult to change that built environment around them. But I think that if you have a balcony, placing native plants out there to help contribute to pollinators, there's small steps like that that I think you can do for the actual built environment. Certainly people's daily habits 
can impact uh, how sustainable their lifestyle may be. For a lot of people that do make the switch to, you know, let's say less plastic in their life or trying to go to the zero waste movement, they're very feasible. It's just about building new habits. People that live in an apartment saying, not living in a, a house with solar and rainwater collection in my own garden, I think you really have to step back and say, well, hey, where is your apartment located? How many people are on that piece of land? What can you walk to? If you live in an apartment, a lot of times you're much more likely to be able to walk to something than you would if you're in a LEED certified house than of a cul-de-sac 20 miles outside of town, right? I would just challenge people to to understand the holistic perspective of, of what it is their lifestyle entails in that apartment or multifamily building because it might be quite a bit more sustainable than what people assume is the more obvious sustainable solution. They're actually quite the opposite. When you're designing a living space, are you also thinking about the outside, the landscaping and that kind of thing? Yeah. Again, it becomes a a conversation with your project team early on. What is the existing ecosystem, the surrounding context? How can we play into that. And I think, as I mentioned before, you know, a lot of municipalities require from a water standpoint, a lot of regulations and certain thresholds to be met to make sure that there's not detrimental impacts on the site from a water perspective. You can't cause any downstream flooding if you're a multifamily project. Now, I will say for a lot of single family development, they're kind of exempt from a lot of that. But I will tell Mm. you that a lot of single family development adds up, especially some of the things built 20, 30 years ago that weren't really regulated. That amount of impervious cover adds up very quickly. There's different tools that you can start to look at that I've utilized on a couple of projects. But one is a carbon calculator of what is the landscape from a landscaping perspective? What kind of materials are we putting down here? How many trees are we planting? Even asking the question of what's the maintenance regimen gonna be on a project? And you can start to understand your carbon impact from a landscaping perspective. Can you go with something that requires less cutting? You can definitely make sure that whatever you're putting down on the ground from a landscaping perspective is gonna contribute positively to the environment. When a lot of people see high density development, they say, oh my gosh, it's 100% impervious cover. And that is terrible for the environment. So maybe that site has a lot of things going for it's walkable, it's next to public transportation, but there will be people who will overlook all of those benefits and say, it's 100% impervious cover. That is terrible for the river that's right next to it. Not saying anything against that, but just to say that a lot of people see those aims of being for the environment completely at odds with high density development. And if you look at actual stormwater or watershed story there, you have to zoom out. Any consideration of sustainability, you have to zoom out. And so those kind of questions have to be considered at the scale of the watershed. Let's say you have 100 acres of land and somebody wants to come in and put one acre lots down. So you get 100 homes there. That is spread thinly across the entire area of land, right? That comes with an entire road network that is impervious cover that wasn't there before at all. Driveways usually come into play, let alone the typically single story single family layout of each of those homes. So easily you could have 60% impervious cover on each of those lots. 
if you were to take those hundred homes and put them on, let's say, a one acre lot, and let's say that's at 80% impervious cover, or even 100% impervious cover, you're going to have a lot more people housed, the much less impervious cover per person. And so when you start to understand, oh, what are also all the other benefits of having that many people in a location that can support local businesses, doesn't involve people getting into their cars, that on top of the watershed story, that to me is a huge narrative that has not been told well at all because we still have these same conversations where high density development is bad for the ecosystem. If you look at it, you start to get into concepts like cluster development. What is that? What is cluster development? Cluster development is utilized often when you're talking about the development of a more rural situation. Let's say you have an old farm that got sold and it's going to be developed. But so cluster development is essentially saying instead of chopping that piece of land into 100 one-acre parcels or 25-acre parcels, let's say we're going to develop some missing middle housing over on this small section of that parcel. And we're going to conserve 50, 75, 80% of that parcel. And we're going to leave it as intact eco region or farmland. And then people live more tightly, more compactly, and they can take advantage of those beautiful scenic vistas, which is why a lot of people often move out to those types of places, right? But they aren't actually destroying them while occupying them. You would think, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense, but it really isn't practiced very much. The ideas Sarah Simpson presents require us to reevaluate our preconceptions about multifamily housing and the environment, especially as the world's population continues to grow. Thanks so much for listening. Please tell people you know about the Mothering Earth podcast. Leave us a review on your podcast platform. Mothering Earth is also on Instagram at mothering underscore earth. Until next time, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news.